Good morning. Well, once again, Pastor Sean has given me the, the honor to read scripture this morning. We'll be reading a passage from Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19. You're invited to read along with me. I'll be reading out of the LSB, the Legacy Standard Version. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that, I, that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. This is, again, the infallible and fully inspired word of Almighty God. Good morning, Hayden Bible Church. God bless all of you. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word. What a blessing it is that we um, can gather together, like has already been said, and just have the freedom to open our Bibles and to see Jesus. Today, Lord, we want to see Jesus. We pray that uh, his name would be exalted among us. Lord, we pray that uh, you would work in every one of our hearts. And Lord, today we pray that uh, you're pleased with our time together. And we know, Lord, that without your spirit enlivening this time, the enlivening your word, Lord, we were fruitless and bankrupt. But today, Lord, we trust that you'll be here among us teaching and uh, we pray that this time would bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder if we should uh, change the hotness of this mic a little bit. Thank you. You know, one of the many blessings as you uh, read the Gospels is that we, uh, not only do we get to see Jesus and his disciples preaching about the kingdom of God, but uh, we get to see Jesus and his disciples actually demonstrating his kingdom authority in their ministry. I wanted to share a few examples as we get started this morning. First of all, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 33, Matthew writes and says, he says, now as they were going out, behold, a mute demon-possessed man was brought to him. 
And after the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke and the crowds marveled, saying, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Again, from chapter 8 and verse 16, Matthew writes and says, Now when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill in order to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Jesus, it turns out, has all authority in heaven and on earth. That's going to be a key relevant thing for us to remember this morning. Again, from Matthew 12, maybe one of the worst situations that you could be in. A guy was demon-possessed, and at the same time, he was both blind and he couldn't talk. That's a tough one for a general practitioner. But Jesus, he healed him. The demon was gone and he could talk and he could see. The crowds could clearly see that he was exercising his kingdom authority. They were astounded. And in Matthew twelve twenty three, they were saying, can this man really be the son of David? And at the same time, the Pharisees, the spiritual leaders of Israel, were claiming that Jesus was using the power of Satan to cast out Satan's demons. They were claiming that Jesus was part of Satan's kingdom. Jesus pointed out the obvious. He says, if Satan cast out Satan's, he's divided against himself. How will, then will his kingdom stand? But we know what the text says, don't we? Jesus and later his disciples, disciples were, they were casting out demons by the Spirit of God. In verse 28 of Matthew 12, Jesus says something you and I desperately need to understand this morning. And certainly as it relates to our main text today. He says to the Pharisees, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then he blows our minds. He says, how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. Not only in Matthew 4, the temptations, did Jesus demonstrate his overpowering nature of his kingdom, certainly when he overcame Satan in the wilderness, but it goes further. Now we see that he is set on plundering that strong man's house by storming the gates of hell through proclamation of his kingdom and the command of his glorious gospel. And he says, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. It turns out this morning that you and I are in the plundering business. We're gatherers of souls. Christ's kingdom will subdue and put an end to all other kingdoms, first and foremost Satan's. He demonstrated that clearly throughout his gospels as we've already seen. Listen, guys, the Son of Man, as John says, was manifested for this purpose, to destroy the works of of the devil. And you and I have the privilege of, of having a front row seat to see him plunder Satan's house as we wield the sword of his word on this planet. 
want you to be encouraged this morning that Jesus Christ's kingdom is the victorious kingdom. Let's go to our passage in Matthew 16. Again from verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? You know, if by chance you happen to travel to northeastern Israel, <laughs> kind of north and east in the, of the Sea of Galilee, as you might be able to see on the screen, where the red dot is, about five miles southwest from the, of the summit of Mount Hermon, the highest point in the nation of Israel, by the way, you'd run across a place of really great evil. A place kind of carved out of the rocks of a mountainside, a historic place of massive religious idolatry. It's called the sanctuary of the false god Pan. To the Greeks of the 3rd century BC, this area was a really attractive place of natural beauty, beautiful panoramas of the snow-capped mountains ab above. Maybe go back one to the, that's Mount Hermon with snow still on it, by the way. Beautiful panoramas of the snow-capped mountains above and the upper Jordan Valley below. You can see it all. And if you're familiar with the geography, this is the area called the Golan Heights and a really productive mountain farming area. All kinds of crops are grown there. Grapes for great wine, peanuts, grains for bread, olives and cherries and avocados. It's a really a productive area of highland farming in Israel. The 3rd century B.C. Greeks were really attracted to this area, especially for all its natural resource abundance. But as, as idolaters, the Greeks dedicated this area, and specifically a particular location, to the Greek god they named Pan. In their minds, Pan was a god of the forest, a helper of shepherds. In their lore, Pan was a god of the wild. As we look back over history, we can see that they worshipped Pan as a fertility god. And Pan, uh, he was kind of the, worshipped as the original bad boy. In ancient art, he's portrayed as doing really evil acts. Inappropriate is an understatement. Pan, it turns out, is a god, a false god of the occult. And he's commonly portrayed in association with Satan and also the nymphs of Greek mythology. Pan held very high esteem in the hearts of the, of the Greek idolaters. In a sense, Pan is still worshipped today here in America. Pantheism is rampant in our media. Any of you heard of Peter Pan? Isn't that ironic? Or a movie we've watched many times, Avatar, is the contemporary poster child for uh, pantheism. In fact, the whole story takes place on a planet called Pandora. Pantheism teaches that all things are connected and that God is really nature and that all souls are interconnected with God. Souls are one with nature. So in a loose sense, people and nature together are God in pantheism. 
Also, whenever it talks about somebody talks to you, you hear it all the time nowadays. I, I, I just ask the universe for help. Somebody that prays out into the universe, hoping that it will ordain something. During that type of prayer, pan is being worshipped and pantheism is being observed. So in the Golan Heights area, with all this abundance, and in particular this rocky outcropping where a deep cave flowed with an amazing spring of crystal clear water, the Greeks dedicated this site to uh, Pan, and they founded a city called Panias. The ruins you can see on the screen, I think in the next slide, show the, uh, the ruins of the sanctuary of Pan. Over the centuries, other shrines were added and other temples will be, were built here, clear up to the time of the Romans of Jesus' day. In this next completed image uh, of the sanctuary of Pan, we can see a temple of the Greek god Zeus, the court of Nemesis, the, the Greek god of rep- retribution. We can see temples to sacred goats and dancing goats, the court of Pan and his nymphs, And also, interestingly enough, Herod the Great even built a temple to worship the original Roman Caesar Augustus because he was kind of more of a politician than than he was a leader of God's people. And the beliefs of the worshipers were that these fertility gods would intermittently manifest themselves in various seasons. And and um, And then in other various seasons, they'd retreat into the underworld. Retreat into Hades for a time. This cave you can see before uh, an earthquake rerouted the water was the source of the spring I mentioned. And it was thought actually to be the gate of the entrance into Hades. Literally the entrance to the gate of hell. After the death of Herod the Great in 4 BC, his son Herod Philip was in charge of the same area. And in honor of Rome and himself, he called the name in our passage, he called this place the name in our passage this morning, Caesarea Philippi. This place was a big deal. We were standing in this place a couple of weeks ago. In Jesus' day, this place was a place of intimidating evil, overwhelming satanic influence. Jesus brought his disciples here in our passage to make a point this morning. We have places like this in our culture too, don't we? Maybe they're not shrines to false gods, but they are They are really intimidating places. Places your knees would knock together. If someone asked you to, 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 you personally, if somebody asked you to speak the name of Christ, places where you'd swallow really hard before you'd opened your mouth, wondering if, if you're making a mistake even bringing this up. Places like your college classroom where they really do worship Pan. And laugh at the name of Jesus Christ. And laugh at you when you open your mouth to say his name. Places like the Mormon stake just down at the corner of Maple and Honeysuckle where they worship a false Jesus. 
Or maybe even a place like your home where your spouse or your kids have seen you fly off the handle so many times that you've tainted your witness even though you claim to be a Christian and you want so desperately for them to see the real Jesus and to love your great God. You want them to be saved, but you've messed it up. Just think for the sec for a second, guys. Where where would be where would you be the most reluctant to speak his name this morning? Possibly for Jesus' disciples, the least likely spot that they could or even would want to step out by faith and proclaim the overwhelming, victorious kingdom of Christ is in Caesarea Philippi. This is training and testing and commencement all at the same time for his disciples. In Caesarea Philippi, the son of man would have been laughed at. In Jesus' day, Rome was God. And, and here at the Greek sanctuary of Pan, the gates of Hades here on this rock mountainside would have seemed like to be a fortress way too strong for some imaginary spiritual kingdom claimed by a man from Galilee. Only the one great true God himself could overcome this great of evil. Again, looking at our text in verse 13, he asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people that you know say that the Son of Man is? As we've already mentioned, Jesus and his disciples were preaching and demonstrating the kingdom of God and casting out demons and healing all kinds of diseases. Jesus spent his whole earthly ministry demonstrating his heavenly authority over all creation. Even the wind and the waves would obey him. And certainly his authority was demonstrated over the realm of Satan. And he's asking this morning, who do people say that the Son of Man is. The Son of Man was the title Jesus used when he spoke of himself. It's a reference back to the Old Testament book of Daniel. In Daniel 7, we see the Son of Man ascending and coming up to the Ancient of Days. In 7.13, Daniel saw that one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and came near before him. And to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away. And his kingdom which is one which will not be destroyed. Who do people say that I am, he asks his disciples. How would we answer him this morning. Who do your kids say that he is? Or your co-workers, who do they say that the Son of Man is? An ally of Satan like the Pharisees thought in Matthew 12? Why would they think that? 
Who do we say he is here this morning, gathered here as a church? His disciples kind of answered a more positive answer, didn't they? Uh, Let's look back at our text. In verse 14, they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. A lot of people had a, have a lot of opinions about who Jesus is, and these men with the scriptures in their minds and all the crazy things that, that they'd been experiencing ever since his baptism and the word that came from heaven, uh, they were trying to piece it all together, they, thinking back to the law and the prophets and with all the messianic prophecy. You know, he could be called, he could be John the Baptist in a sense, in the spirit of Elijah from Malachi, or, or Jeremiah even, calling people to be faithful to the covenant that they were bound to. Or maybe one of the other prophets. He could have been like Haggai or Amos. Certainly, many people were of the opinion that he was someone associated with God somehow. Even Nicodemus said to him, remember, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Isn't it interesting how many people have opinions of who he is, and they've never really read the truth of who he is from, their, from his word? Praise the Lord that we have his word. I wonder how many opinions we have here at Hayden Bible Church about who he is. Is he really a king? Is he even really alive? Is he really seated on his throne exercising his dominion? Will his great commission really be accomplished? Can, can, can he really say that? Does he really have all authority in heaven and on earth? Like he says? Is he someone who should really be relevant as we voted last week? Back to verse 15, Jesus narrows his focus a bit to the very people he was literally pouring his life into. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? The you is plural, so he's talking to the group. Who do you say that I am? Standing in the sanctuary of the false god called Pan at Caesarea Philippi, a scary place. A place like all the other places he would send them after his crucifixion, after his ascension. Places where you could get killed for speaking his name, like Stephen did. With rocks. Or places where you'd be ran out of town. Places of great intimidation. Maybe like a city council meeting. Or even places with violent, evil people, human traffickers even in our day. 
or places where secularism has such a strong hold that any word of Christ would, would find you escorted out of the room. His disciples needed to know the answer to that question. They needed to know the answer to that question before they could be useful to him in his kingdom. It's a a good question for each of us to ask ourselves this morning. Who do you say that I am? Who do you personally say that he is? Is is your answer informed by his word today, the, the word that we started with this morning, the very same word that calls him the ruler of the kings of the earth? The same word that shows him plundering Satan's strongholds, claiming souls for himself and building the heavenly Jerusalem by the spirit now, whose builder and architect is God? Is that your Jesus? Is that your powerful king? Is he the source of your gospel courage today? Or are you? Is he even lifted up so high in your heart this morning that even the complete loss of your personal reputation in this community because of your association with his great name and with his redeemed people wouldn't deter you from persevering in the expansion of his kingdom? Would you personally risk your reputation for Jesus Christ? In Mark 8.35, the king himself, he says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. I love Jesus' words to the church in Philadelphia. He says, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the sanctuary of my God, and he will never go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Praise the Lord. Who do you say that he is this morning? He's a dilemma to some people. He's the representative of a bunch of abrasive right-wingers to other people. He's a dry theological topic to heady pharisaical disciples to others. Some people even think of him as their little helper. Who do you Say that I am, he asks them. Back to our text, verse 16. Peter answers his king on behalf of all the disciples standing there. He says, he says this, let this sink in. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Here they stand at Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi, the sanctuary of the Greek god Pan. 
with nymphs, the gates of hell, a place where pagan worship of false dead gods abounded, a place where centuries of evil were perpetrated as evil men bowed to satanic dead idols like Baal and Pan and Zeus and Nemesis and even Caesar Augustus. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, blessed king forever. Amen. Amen. He's God's unique son. he's, He's the prophesied owner of the throne of David. And he brings forgiveness of sins through his cross and his resurrection and his kingdom, guys, will have no end. In fact, the apostle John agreed with Peter's conclusion. In fact, he wrote his whole gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The apostles got it here. Peter had the right understanding of who was standing in front of him. It was the living God. Thinking back to King David himself as a young man, he even faced death when he stood in the face of Goliath, didn't he? Certain death. But as a foreshadow of our great king, David cried out, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should reproach the battle lines of the living God? There is one true living God and Jesus Christ is son of that triune God one in essence with father and spirit he's our victorious king who conquered certain death even greater than Goliath even greater than Pan even greater than Caesar Augustus and he's called his people to plunder Satan's house with spiritual weapons of courageous warfare today Back to verse 17. Jesus answered and said to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The knowledge of Christ isn't something that can be deduced in some worldly philosophical way. Flesh and blood or even Satan, or excuse me, Simon Peter's own dad, Simon Barjona, can't even make him see it. The only way for anyone to see the king or his kingdom is by a supernatural work from the Father above. Amen? Amen. This is spiritual. This is a ministry of the Spirit. The Father, through the Spirit, is who reveals the Son. The Spirit brings new birth, so now we can see. Blessed are those, including Peter, including you, each, including every one of us who, who see the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are we to see him. Blessed are we when we see his word come to life in our home flocks. And and blessed are we when we pray to him and he assures our hearts that he loves us and we can trust him. Blessed are we when we trust that his kingdom is an overcoming kingdom. And and when we trust that our heavenly citizenship as we walk out our lives on this planet. and, And even when we risk our reputation or maybe even our lives. 
standing in Caesarea Philippi, this crazy place of centuries of evil. The disciples needed a word of courage from their king. Jesus continues and he says, And I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Amen. Peter, literally his name means stone. Kind of like one of those five stones that David picked out of the brook in the valley of Elah. You can see that valley on the screen, by the way. And by the way, if you talk to my wife, Carlina, she pulled some stones out of that brook. <laughs> like the five smooth stones that King David picked out to fight Goliath, Peter would be a weapon in the hands of the greater David. A stone of attack. An offensive weapon, even in the face of intimidating circumstances, not unlike the intimidating atmosphere at Caesarea Philippi. Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation, but do not worry. Take courage because I have overcome this world. Again, Jesus says to Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. I know there's many logical interpretations of this passage in your study Bibles, but in my mind, here's the bottom line. No one sees the kingdom without seeing the Christ, the son of the living God. There is, this is the rock or foundation of God's building of his church, seeing Jesus for who he really is. In Romans 9.33, Paul quotes God in Isaiah saying, Just as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of a stumbling and a rock of offense, and the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. The one who believes, like Peter, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, on this rock, on this foundation, and aligned to this chief cornerstone on this revelation and this new birth from above, Christ is building his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The strong man's house will not overcome it. It can't prevent it. Christ, our king, will win the spoil for which he died. He will have his inheritance like David before him. He will rescue his bride. You and I are living proof this morning of, of this truth. The apostles were living proof at Pentecost that the kingdom of Christ will overcome all other kingdoms like it did with Rome. It will eventually overcome and subdue every other kingdom just like Daniel prophesied it would. It will happen. Jesus says, I will build my church. He does it from his majestic throne above. The realm of hell is currently being looted as you and I are bringing disciples into the kingdom. We are literally plundering, plundering Satan's house. 
standing here today at Caesarea Philippi, as intimidating as that might seem, yet empowered by the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire, who was dead, yet behold, lives forever and ever, the same one who holds the keys of death and Hades, not Satan, Jesus the Christ, the Son of living God. The darkness and the intimidation of Caesarea Philippi runs and hides in the face of this king. This morning, the dark, intimidating place where you're afraid to mention his name runs and hides. Your king literally holds the keys of death in Hades. Your king. He's in charge. He has all authority. Do not fear. Tell everybody, cry aloud, risk your reputation. Tell them that the king has come and that the spirit and the bride say come and let the one who hears that that, that message say come and let the one who is thirsty come. As the revelation says, let the one who wishes receive the water of life without cost. Because Christ is building his church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. What Jesus was saying to his disciples was an admonition to storm the gates of hell. Again, he says to Peter, looking forward beyond the victory of the cross and to his ascension to the throne, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. You're carrying out heaven's will. The apostle of Jesus, the apostles of Jesus Christ, and by extension, us, as we proclaim their message that they handed down through the Holy Scriptures, in a sense, you and I, this morning, have the keys to the kingdom of heaven as well, as we wield the sword of the word of God in this place. You might remember later in Matthew, just before the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 23, Jesus is proclaiming woe after woe on the corrupt, covenant-breaking leadership of Israel who lead their people astray. The same passage where he tells them that their house is being left to them desolate. In verse 13 of that chapter, he says to them, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. But now the apostles, the Jews born of the Spirit, have the keys. And by extension from them, we have they've been handed down to us now. And we have the authority to proclaim forgiveness of sins through the blood of Christ. We have the authority to say, if you repent and trust in the blood of Christ's cross, you will be saved. Your sins will be forgiven. We have authority in Christ. So that as you and I this morning, as we leave this place and go on the offensive and and we gird up our loins in a sense by faith and take his spirit-empowered word into the dark places of our community, even the gates of hell cannot prevail against his kingdom. 
He will build his church. We don't have anything to fear. His kingdom will never be destroyed. There's no chance that he will lose. He will always reign from his throne. His kingdom will crush every other kingdom. His kingdom will stand forever. He is king forevermore. Like his disciples standing at Caesarea Philippi, you and I must be convinced that Jesus Christ is victor. Where else would we get our courage? In ourselves? Are we the Holy Spirit? Souls are the spoil of this victory. Our great God, Jesus Christ, the ruler of the kings of the earth, currently has all authority today. The foundation of this great end times temple has been laid, and Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone. And as we, you and I, as we win souls, starting in our own homes for our great king, let's make sure that we're building on that foundation with fidelity to the real gospel of his kingdom. That's the only way of salvation. When our work is revealed with fire, we'll know the souls we won will stand the test because the quality of our work will be revealed. Be be true to the real gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. On our recent trip to Israel, I was... I was so struck by Caesarea Philippi. It's so seemingly insignificant in scripture. A place name. It's mentioned for a reason. This place that Jesus brought his disciples kind of stands up as an example, at least to me, of the craziness and the evil that we're all a bit bewildered by in our times. The only difference is that the monuments and the places of worship and the temples today have different names. LGBTQ+, secular humanism, new age, woke, cult after cult that started over the years. All in some ways the religion of our culture, all being propagated and drilled into our minds by the news and drilled into our minds by entertainment and drilled through our social media. We're in a battle Your king is on the throne and he has all authority today. All of this stuff seems normal to us now. We need to have our minds renewed by his word. By the way, just as a side note, at Caesarea Philippi, the government built the temple. And it was built as a place to worship the government's leader, among other fake gods. This is really intimidating And in the right context, even so that you might even be tempted to run the other way instead of standing for Christ. The cost, guys, is overwhelming. But our king, the victorious Christ, the son of the living God has called us out of this darkness and has put each of us into service in his kingdom of light. So today you can have courage that the gates of hell will not prevail against you in him. Amen. Amen. Carlina and I are so thankful to the Lord and grateful to our church and our church leaders to have been able to experience this really good trip to Israel over the last couple of weeks. It was the proverbial fire hose of information. 
We went from place to place all over the nation, seeing things like Caesarea Philippi and Galilee and the Dead Sea and Qumran and En Gedi and the Valley of Jezreel and Mount Carmel and many, many more places, not to mention the Temple Mount, which you're going to hear more about next week. I don't think there was a wasted moment on this trip. We had such a wonderful leader from Rocky Mountain Bible Mission, Peter Wietendorf and his lovely wife, Lori, both so passionate about uh, God and the history of the land. And we had another blessing in our, in our tour guide from Pilgrim Tours, Susie, so knowledgeable and, as, and uh, a really fast walker, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we go. And we got to spend every day with 30 other lovers of Jesus who were all blessed like us to stand in places where our Lord's ministry started. And we really pray today that the Lord would, would bear fruit in us through the things that we've learned as he plunders this strong man's house for his glory. All right, let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your blessings from above. We stand this morning asking that you would use your word in places like Caesarea Philippi, Lord, to, to help us have courage to speak the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, it's a guarantee. You've taught us, Lord, that it's a guarantee that you are the overwhelming conqueror. You have all authority. And in you, Lord, we know that we've been called to go out and proclaim your great name, your kingdom, and salvation 